Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just a, a gauge, and I know if you're on us online with us on Facebook, uh, you can put this into the chat room, but just a gauge, how many of you remember when you picked up the Bible for the first time? Do you remember that and read it? Yeah, some of us? Some of us were raised reading the Bible by our parents, our grandparents, our aunties, uncles. Others of us, you know, it was that thing that maybe we got during some course in the church that we were a part of or school that we were a part of. And then others still were not part of the church. And so if you remember opening the Bible for the first time, or let's just say this. Let's say you haven't read the Bible in a number of months or maybe a number of years and you remember reading it when you were a kid. Where do people typically open it up, right? They open it up in the beginning. And then they start journeying through the Bible for the very first time or a renewed time. And then they start to get tired <laughs> and sleepy, right? And not, or not that, full of all kinds of crazy questions, like who in the world are the Nephilim in Genesis, and then why in the world is God going through all of these ornate details around this ridiculous tent structure that they have walking through the desert with this fancy word called the tabernacle, right? And that doesn't even say that you happen to make it all the way to Leviticus or other parts of the Old Testament, a common error, I would say, that early Christians make, or renewed Christians, or any of us for that matter, is oftentimes to commit ourselves to reading our Bible more fully and to start in Genesis only to find ourselves weary and unable to continue much past what's known as the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. This sermon series, we are exploring our questions together. We began the series by talking about Thomas, who faithfully doubted Jesus' resurrection, and yet who had an intimate connection to Jesus post-resurrection. That it was through his questions that he was able to touch Jesus and to, and to truly know that he was, in fact, alive and had defeated the power of death. Our questions aren't ones that we ought to avoid, but ones that we ought to embrace to help us go deeper. And again, you can chat with us or you can raise your hand. How many have ever had questions about the scriptures that you have read, <laughs> right? Probably all of us. How many of you have heard the words of the scripture verse that we read just a few minutes ago, that all scripture is God-breathed? Yeah, have you heard that before? Or how many of you have heard the phrase, God's word? Yeah? Well, post-divinity school, after having some uh, classes and what it means to translate the Bible and, and other things, I found it was really ironic when I had went to a, a church, and uh, the, it was at a church where the pastor would fit in uh, scriptures throughout the service, and he kept saying, God's word says, God's word says, God's word says. And I kept thinking to myself, okay, this is great. But then the, the funny part to me was that up on the screen, it was God's word says from the King James Version. Up on the screen was God's word says from the Message Translation. Up on the screen was God's word says the New Living Translation. And I just thought to myself, man, God's word is diverse and it's made its way into all of these different translations. But isn't that a true question for us? 
Any of us that know another language know that translation is not a simple task, right? There's words that just don't carry over the same meaning. There's words that uh, you have to try to use different language in order that someone might capture what a sense of that might look like. And so when we say God's word, what in fact are we referring to? And that was one of the questions that we had, is what does it mean for God's word to be, in fact, God's word? Well, this is just a perspective, and you can throw your stones later, but I would like to say that many Christians, especially within the 21st century, have a, a heresy within our kind of DNA, which is to say that there is a fourth person of the Trinity, or a fourth deity, and that is the scripture itself. The scripture itself becomes God's word written the way that we see it on the paper. And it becomes revered in a way that questions or doubts or sometimes things that are different within it can't really be asked of it because it's God's word and you can't change that word, right? But the reality is is that we are Nicene, Trinitarian Christians that believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Scripture is our foundation, but it is not our God. Scripture is a foundation, and it is not our God. Scripture is the primary vehicle in which God speaks to us throughout history. I took a course in undergraduate school called the History of Biblical Interpretation, the ways in which people approach the Bible. And let me tell you this, there is no one way that Christians have approached the Bible throughout history. There's no one way that Christians approach the Bible right now. But you know what the Bible has served as? A vehicle through which faithful people have God have sought after the Word of God. I remember I was also in a class and a description of what are different ways in which we understand the Bible and God's Word. And I found, I happened to be in sort of a Baptist, non-denominational world, and so God's Word was simple, it was pragmatic, it was what you read on the paper is what God's Word is, right? But then there is another description of it, that God's Word is not on the paper, but God's word is the way God speaks to you through that word. That God's word is the way that God speaks to us through that word. Because friends, I, like you, have read the Bible and have had many questions, right? And there's different things and different accounts. You know, if you open the Bible and you start in chapter 1, you will be encountered by one of the questions that is present within the Bible, that there are two different accounts of creation with different timelines of them. There's two different times in which John the Baptist meets his end. There's different timelines of Jesus' own life and ministry. Just the Bible is not a history book. The Bible is not a mythical fiction. The Bible is not a book of song. The Bible is this amalgamation of scriptures and teachings throughout history that we have come to inherit and use as the foundation of our faith. 
And I say foundation of our faith because it is just that. We go to it, but there are questions that we encounter within it. Take, for example, the household codes from the Apostle Paul, who many of you know I love, but who also tells women, unfortunately, if you have earrings and aren't covering your hair, you better leave the room and please don't talk in our presence because the men are speaking today. That's a joke, okay? That's a joke. But it is a way in which people have interpreted the words that have been found within the Bible, right? We are, you, well, you might not be, but you find yourself in a United Methodist sanctuary. And I serve on the Board of Ordained Ministries, which asks questions of ordinands or people as they're making their way through the ordination process. And we want to make sure that they can articulate our theology uh, that we've inherited in our like, flavor of the Christian church. And one of the primary ones is one that you all know about, right? The Wesleyan Quadrilateral. <laughs> and you just think to yourself, this is not a math class, first of all, and I don't even know what pastor is talking about. But it truly is one of our distinct markers of our branch of the Christian church. And that's to say that we always begin with Scripture. But Scripture cannot interpret itself. And so, just like when I said the words from Apostle Paul and the household codes and what all women must do accordingly, your experience, especially you women in the room, kind of like boiled up within you and said, no, I am not doing that. And our communal experience says, no, we're not going to put up with that sort of uh, subversive, subvertive like, understanding of men and women. And that is a way in which we approach the Bible. And that's one of the pieces, quadrilateral is four corners, right? And one of them is our experience. Your experience in you said, nuh-uh, that does not fit, right? And that's of value. Well, another thing that we look at is tradition. And we look at what has the church believed? Not just like right now, but like for millennia. Now friends, did you know that the best way to interpret the Bible has nothing to do with what the words are on the paper, but everything to do with the mythical meaning beyond the paper. You're saying to me, Brian has lost his rocker over here. He does not know what he is talking about, but that was the first way in which Christians interpreted the Bible. Origen was one of the first uh, Christian intellectuals, and he and others of the time believed that the primary meaning of the scripture was beyond the words themselves. For 150 years of the church, the most important way to read the Bible was to start to go beyond what it said. And that beyond was what God truly had to say. They called it the in-between of the sentences. That was a traditional way in which Christians have interpreted the Bible. You know, we in the 21st century, we kind of like get wrapped around the Discovery Channel, right? That the truth of the Bible is the history of the Bible. And there's a lot of history to be found within it. But the reality is, is that I, as I talk to my kids about the Bible, one of the questions they ask me is they go, Dad, did that really happen? <laughs> Because something about their experience, right, helps them know that 
hey, maybe Jonah didn't get swallowed by an actual whale and lived there for a time period. And don't get me started on the translation. It wasn't a whale, but we'll, we'll go that topic another day. But the idea is that sometimes our tradition illuminates scripture. And so I go back to St. Origen and look at what he meditated upon on the words and, and to hear those words and, and to find a new meaning that's 2,000 years old. But then sometimes tradition fails us, right? It has in our past. And so sometimes when our experience and our tradition don't line up, that's okay and we can learn to synthesize accordingly. And then there's also what's called reason. How many of you sat in your high school class and thought to yourself, I have a very big conundrum. My church tells me A, and my science teacher is telling me B. Right? I sat in a class at Sundays where they said God made the earth in seven literal days, stopgap, end. Earth is 6,000 years old. I sat in my science class on Monday, and they told me the earth was millions and millions of years old, if not billions of years old. I'm sorry, friends, but sometimes we have to learn to narrate our faith and our understanding of the Bible in light of reason, which is to say scientists and people that know more about the natural world than, than we do. You want one of the biggest shifts of Christianity and interpretation of the Bible was when we discovered the reality that the sun did not revolve around the earth and we were not the center of the universe. It was a total mind shift for us as Christians because God made Adam and Eve and we were the most important thing in all of the cosmos to now we are one among many planets that are revolving around this life-giving energy source called the sun. And that is not bad. It just means we have to have a task of interpreting the Bible differently. And I say all of that because one of the distinct questions that we talked about, or that we got within the questions that were submitted is, what do we do with the parts of the Bible that just aren't congruent with what we believe about our faith? Most notably it is a very traditional one that is the God of the Old Testament seems to be a God of, of war and sort of, you know, kind of violence. And the God of the New Testament, well, that's Jesus and love and forgiveness. And that's a challenge. And I will fully give you a disclaimer. I have a problem with listening to music, of watching movies, of reading books, of sort of blinding out the stuff that doesn't fit with me. Like, I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, I just thought that was just so provocative and they made us think. And then someone else would be like, yeah, but did you hear all of the words that they were saying? And I'll just let you know that I kind of block those out sometimes because I'm just so focused on the theme that they're getting at. So I hear you, right? Take, for example, the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
a story that I preached upon uh, when I was first pastor in North Carolina, and I was so excited to tell about the reliance that Abraham had on God, and then I had a woman come to me afterwards and said, Pastor, I'm sorry I had to leave. Sorry I had to leave because honestly, after losing my own son, I could not hear a story about someone willing to give up their own son. And it was a, a perspective reality for me. But sometimes I acknowledge that parts of the Bible are painful for us. And sometimes we can glean out of them as well, meaning and hope. I remember the one of the most encouraging moments in my faith, in the church, that is, was when I had all sorts of questions and doubts. I perhaps have told you this story. And I went to a church in Minnesota called Solomon's Porch. It's an emergent church. It doesn't meet in pews. It meets in a circle round. And rather than the pastor standing with a prepared sermon, the pastor would sit in the center with questions and ask them of the congregation, and you would chat with the people next to you. And my first experience there, they were talking about the book of Joshua. Don't know the book of Joshua? Haven't read the Bible in a while? Don't recommend reading it for your first time through. But it has lots of difficulties within it. And the pastor's question was, what do we do about genocide in Joshua? <laughs> I said, can you talk about that in church? Can you ask that sort of question of the word of God? Those are true questions that real people, perhaps even you have about that book. And there is no easy way out. There's ways that I've learned to articulate it. That a significant portion of the Old Testament was put together by a layer of authors, which is hard for some of us, but the last of which had its hand on as the people of Israel were going back into the land after being gone in exile. And so they built within it some sense of this sort of machismo nationalism that God is on their side so that they might leave the habits and rituals of Babylon that they had come to learn over the 70 years and recommit themselves to faithfulness in God. God's word is complicated and it takes community it takes our experience, a look back at tradition, and reason to help us. Reason would tell us, and my experience, that God would not invite any of us to commit atrocities in God's name. And we have seen where people have gone astray in thinking it was okay. The Bible, though, is still where we go back to. Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian at Duke, he said this sort of double-layered phrase. First is, we need to take the Bible out of the hands of the lay people. <laughs> but then he also said, you cannot read the Bible enough because it's by which we are formed. And the reason he said that is because he has seen all too many people open the Bible with this sort of plain pragmatism. What it says is what it means. 
and they've wielded that in all sorts of ways. But we must not ever stop reading it. Although I hear there's painful parts of the Old Testament, I promise you, if you find the themes and if you read it in its entirety, you find a love of God that we're going to talk about in the baptism of one of our members that goes before us, that is committed to us even amidst our mistakes. And yes, there are ways in which those faithful people were flawed in their life. The ways that they treated women or slaves. The ways that they treated people of different genders and identities. But friends, remember a few weeks ago, I said that we are actually, if you've gotten a KKP, I think I even wrote about it there too. Some of them are still on their way. But in the KKP, I say, the church is not a house for saints. It's a hospital for sinners and those that are broken. So too is our view upon the Bible. And that's why when you open it, you pray, God, speak to me through this, including myself. Because I get in the way of what it has to say, what God has to say to me. And that's been true of all generations. How do we allow God to speak through it and sometimes even through us, challenging us to faithfulness? I know I can't answer all of our questions, but I will give you this sort of practice this week. It's one that some of you are familiar, some of you might not, and it goes back to origin, one of the first ways in which we interpret scripture. But it was developed by Ignatius of Loyola in the mid-15th, 16th century. And that is Lectio Divina, divine reading. It's a way to approach scripture, so find a scripture and you read it. And then you wait in silence. And you pray, God, let something, this next reading, just tug on my heart a bit. And you read it again. And it might be a word, sheep, or it might be a word, go, or it might be a phrase, make disciples. And then you pray on that. And you say, what might you trying to be saying to me here? And then you read it again. And then you pray. Read, find a word, read again. And you can find God's voice in the Bible speaking to you. It might not be pen and paper or this audible boom or the burning flame in the bush. But God is guiding us through the words 